I'd like you to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians 10, an old familiar friend of yours there. Two verses of scripture that found their way into our congregation and our lives for years. But they're very meaningful. They never grow old. They never get stale. Because the message is always current. And it's about warfare. It's about our struggles in this life, which are far deeper than we often realize. On my little weekend trip this year, early this week, I was with Brother Guthrie up in Pennsylvania, and we had some good talks about warfare and about the hour that we're in, the way things are moving around, the trends in Christianity, the decisions that a lot of Christians are making are not really good, but they seem to be fine. And we were talking about the enemy within, that there is a way the enemy has been able to invade people's lives in the realm of their thinking and their mind and to reorient people's decisions, the way they live, the choices they're making. It's changing because this is a war. This is what the devil does. This is how he manipulates, ruins, and draws people down. This is how he kills and steals and robs. If that's not real clear to us, we won't do much in the way of fighting it. But he comes in very subtle because the Bible describes the devil that way. We talk about warfare. We talk about overcoming. We talk about warning. Paul did. He said, I warn, I teach. It's important for Christians to know that the devil is very real and his methods or his wiles or his way of coming against people is very real. And yet it seems so harmless. It seems so meaningless. It's so juvenile that we don't pay much attention to it only to realize that later on in our lives, 20 years down the road, we haven't grown. We haven't conquered yesteryear's personality problems. We still pout, fly off the handle, do this and do that and say this and act that way and still argue and gripe and complain and critical. 30 years later, we still do that. Now, there's something that has gotten inside and develop what our scripture here calls a stronghold. Let's read it. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, stronghold, strongholds are like fortresses. Many of you are familiar with uh, years long ago when in the Bible days when the strongest cities were fortified cities. They had huge walls. You couldn't scale those walls without something falling on you or getting shot. They were very well protected. And these walls were like strongholds holes. And the whole purpose and design of a stronghold was to prevent something from coming in to conquer you, to something from coming in and taking over. It was something that kept the enemy, your enemy, that kept them out. And spiritually speaking, a stronghold is something in a person that opposes the truth, maybe gently, maybe kindly, maybe humorously, maybe somewhat innocently, but it still keeps you from being faithful to God. Even though you've heard it, it's something in you that has an excuse mechanism, a way of dealing with what God said in such a way that that really doesn't apply to you, that was not for this day, or I'm not ready for that, or I don't think that's what that means. And you resist it, and you maintain your own ways before God. 
and you do it year after year after year. And if somebody presses the issue spiritually, what the Bible says, then the truth becomes offensive. And people don't want to hear it anymore. And religion has gotten so established in its systems. They all have a certain area that they major on. And they've gotten so established in their system that nothing can change it. It really doesn't matter what the Bible says about it. They're not going to do any different. This is the way we did it. This is the way we've always done it. And that's the way it's going to be. And as I'll say later on, there is something in Christianity that makes religion vain. Something that makes religion as we know it to be useless. It accomplishes nothing because instead of God's word directing our lives, we have reformulated what it said and put it in our own definition, made it more sensible, more reasonable, and we live by what our opinions say more so than what God says. And it's okay because we all do it. And yet, it's a dead religion. You can't deny, you may not want to, but you cannot deny the fact that little is happening to the character and the hearts of people in a system that has turned from God to something else. Because this is the devil's work. This is how he maneuvers. This is how he captures and this is how he operates. A man's heart can become a place where sin resides and the sin of his heart fortifies himself and it becomes like a stronghold. So that when God says something, whatever it might be, a doctrine, because doctrine is what we teach. And whatever it says, if you don't like that, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to make that change, the stronghold is a development you have in your thinking, which the devil brought you so that you oppose the truth and you reject the truth and you don't want it. This is that high thing that the Bible talks about that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. So that instead of us living by the knowledge of God or what he's teaching us, we maintain our own ways before him. Because we put that before, we put the word of God. After all, I mean, nobody's perfect. I mean, how can we do that in this age? Well, how, that won't work. Those kind of thoughts barrage your minds. Those are the kind of thoughts that assault all of our minds. Constantly, every day, every decision. Everything that we have to do every day with the idea as a Christian to do it in a way that pleases God and is acceptable to him, we are faced with these decisions every day and the devil always has an alternative. Anything to suppress you, hold you down, draw you back, to disarm you so that you become ineffective. Whatever it is, that's what he tries to do. And it takes effort and work to bring into captivity to capture these thoughts that are motivating you, directing your life. It takes a lot of courage to say, I've been misled. I have accepted as a way of life what the group thinks, and yet I have not submitted myself to the lordship of this word. So instead of doing what God says, I'm kind of doing what people told me to do. And now I'm hearing the word, and I'm wondering if, I should do this anymore. You know, a harmless, oh, well, not harmless, but we probably had this problem the first time we learned about Halloween. The church had a big haunted house festivity and we're gonna have a kiddies come and do all the things. And then somebody somehow found out that Halloween has nothing to do with God. It has to do with fun and being demonized, but it's, it's what we thought we were doing for our kids. It was good. We're bonding with our children, taking them to let them play with the devil's toys and witches and demons and goblins. Innocent stuff because it's in the stores, it's in all the talk, it's fun, and it's a lot of laughter. And yet when we read the scripture, we read, well, that's not a good thing. The Bible says shun the appearance of evil and witches are evil. And so when you say that to the Halloween committee, boy, all of a sudden you are a bad guy. You say, I told you the truth. But in their way of thinking, look, why do you have to be so 
legalistic? Why do you have to be so narrow? Why do you have to always go, well, the Bible says, the Bible says. Why do you have to do that all the time? Can't you just cooperate? Now, where do you think that kind of thinking comes from? Who teaches us to think outside the Bible? Who gives us suggestions in ways that are not according to what God is teaching us? Why is it so hard to teach the scriptures? Is it not because people have developed alternative ideas as to what they think it means and the way they think we should live? And therefore, sometimes you preach and there's no response because I don't know if I want to believe that or not. Where did you get that? How did that get in you? I'm not talking about the devil. How did those kind of thoughts get into your life to rule your actions? Okay, what is it that makes us quiet and silence when God wants praise? Why do we not do that? Because something on the inside tells us that that's not always necessary. After all, God's not hard of hearing. And he's not asleep, so you don't have to try to wake him up with all this noise and all this racket you make. Where did that kind of thinking come from? How does such a thought get into my mind so that it now occupies and becomes a stronghold against maybe raising my hands and praising God with a loud voice, maybe dancing before the Lord? Whoa. We don't do that in our church. Why? What's the scripture say? Well, that's just your opinion. No, it ain't my opinion. It isn't my opinion. What does the Bible say? Let me teach it. So you teach it and it goes nowhere. Why? Because there's a stronghold. Formed ideas and opinions in all of our minds about the way we see it and want it to be. And an unwillingness, because this is where rebellion comes from. An unwillingness to resign ourselves to God's way because I don't really want to do that. How did that happen? You weren't just born that way. You were born with an inclination. But how did you get to this way? How did you go to some charismatic church or some lively church, some praising church, some singing church, like the Nazarenes, the great singers or Church of Christ? That's all good, but so much is suppressed in your life. How did you do that? How did a Trojan horse get into the fort? How did that happen? How did the devil, how was he able to manipulate it? Was it the educational system? Probably. Was it liberal parents? Could be. Was it the textbooks in school? Could be. Was it your professor in college? You got away from home, you're on your own now. You can do as you please. Nobody tell you what time to go to bed or make up your bed. The professor, I mean, he's got three or four degrees. Whoa. Anybody that many degrees and that much head knowledge has to be right. And what he says is so different than what we heard in church. So that I'm wondering if what we heard in church is even valid. I mean, it's, this guy's smart. Where do you suppose that kind of thinking and reasoning came from. The Bible said, if any man speak not, any man, me, you, or them, if any man speak not according to this word, they're living in darkness. And if you're feasting on darkness, then you too will live in darkness. And our religion is vain because it'll take us nowhere We'll just satisfy ourselves in this short time of life that we're good people, that we're okay because we go to church, we donate, we get involved, we help, and therefore we're all right. You exclude everything else that God says which offends you, and you develop a religion that says, if I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this, I'm all right, and I don't have to do anything else. I'm fine. Who taught you that? Because, you know, if, if you read the Bible... Whoo, there's a lot there. Who taught us that? 
Or maybe a better question, how does this devil get in? How does this kind of a thinking get in our life? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. How does this come in? Ephesians chapter 4, just a couple of books to your right there. Verse 27. We're told in verse 27 to neither give place to the devil. Isn't that right? Isn't that what scripture says? So we are warned then that we can give place to the devil. Can we not? Now think of it. I as a Christian born again, spirit filled, whatever you want to call it, subscribing to a deeper life, a more proper way to live in this adversarial world, a world that's against me. When I live my life, they don't want to be around me. They like to find faults with me and hope I fall so they can justify the fact that you're not right. So I'm in this world living like this, supposed to be a light shining, supposed to have an influence on wherever I am. Knowing that Jesus said in John 7 and John 15, you'll be hated in this world, but it's not you they hate, it's me because you're letting me live my way through you. Now, as long as you let me have my way in you, you not only will be hated, but you'll be saved and blessed. It's when you don't want to take any more of this heat from the world that your mind begins redesigning something. Well, you know, don't, I mean, come back, I mean, yeah. And you start changing. Where did the change come from? Whose thoughts were those that said, quit doing it God's way. You're only getting in trouble. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose everything if you keep doing things God's way and you keep talking about it. Why don't you just calm down? Everybody knows you're all right after all. Isn't that the way the devil talks? It is. If you don't know it, it is. And that's what you've been hearing. Calm down. You're all right. You don't have to do all of that. Now, that's a lie. We must obey God. But we can't obey what we don't know, so we have to find out. That's why we're here. One of the great functions of the church is to teach the people. And so, in verse 27, he says, neither give place to the devil, which means that I can and you can. And it means also that, as we'll see next, that the devil is constantly looking for an opening in your life. Constantly looking for some way you and he can bond so that he can come in and begin to work his death. And his death is nothing more than to keep you from being religious, to keep you from being faithful, to major on, hey, just be a good guy. Come, just be a good guy. A gob or a gog, a good old boy or a good old girl. Don't be so religious that, you know, you'd turn people off. You can't win them if you, you know, if you act like, hey, man, take it easy. Where do you suppose that kind of thinking comes from? Because that's contrasted with the word of God. I don't mean we have to go out and blare in people's faces, turn or burn. I don't say we do that. We want a good report with people out of here. We pay our bills, we're fair, we're kind, we help, we're helpful. We don't fight, we don't cause trouble, we don't get in people's way, we'll turn the other cheek if we have to, emotionally or physically. We just turn the cheek, we're meek and humble, that's what Christ said he was like, isn't it? So meek and humble is not the way I am, and you know, if you let them hit you on one side, I'll tell you what, you better jump up and hit. Where did that kind of thinking come from? It's the world's thoughts, this constant barrage of do it this way, do it the way. Don't do what God said. But he said, if I give place to the devil, it has to be that I submit myself to something that is not of God. Would you agree? If the devil doesn't have a place, then he wants a place. And his way of getting a place is to appeal to your mind and your thinking or your weakness or your flaws to try to get you to see things this other way and get you to submit to it because then he can gain an entrance. He can have an influence on your life 
that really keeps you from being spiritual and faithful. For example, look at verse 22. He said, you know, the old man, the other guy you used to be, the other girl you used to be, in the eyes of God, you were corrupt. I mean, everything about you was corrupt. And it was according to these deceitful cravings that you had or lust. You wanted this, you wanted that, you wanted this, you wanted that. And the devil said, why not? Go for it. You're only young once. So what's wrong with sleeping together? You're going to get married anyway, aren't you? I mean, come on. We're in love, aren't we? It couldn't be bad, could it? If you don't know that's not demonic, then you're really asleep. This enticement to do something different than the way God has taught us. This appeal to the wisdom of the world. Come on, after all, you know. I mean, how will you ever know? How will you ever have a home if you don't borrow? I mean, come on. I mean, if you want to have anything in this life, it's the world's way of doing it. The wisdom of this world, God allows that in 1 Corinthians 1, 22. But you know what the Bible says? For the world by wisdom knew not God. They knew not God by its ways, choices, decisions. It's wisdom. Because the Bible says the world's walking in darkness, doesn't it? It's a religious darkness. Everybody has an opinion about God and religion, and that seems to be good enough for them to hope for heaven. They don't know anything about the Bible and are offended when they listen to it, but they have an idea or an opinion. Religion is for weak people. They're strong. They don't need that. God knows their heart. But they bypass everything that God demands and build themselves on their own little worldly opinions, and they're argumentative. They want to fight. They want to shrug the shoulder and pout. That's the work of the devil. That's what the devil does in his method of killing and stealing and destroying. And he goes through the rest of this chapter here pointing out the old and the new, the way it was and the way it should be. Because we were corrupted. We were and have been corrupted from the time we drew our first breath, especially when we could learn how to think. This corrupting influence of the world and all of its logic and its reasonableness, and its sensibleness, all of that became to a child. Why not lie? Why should you lose everything you have by telling the truth? I mean, after all, God knows you're honest, and in this case, you should, and where does all of that come from? It comes from the devil, and it kills us. It absolutely has a suppression and oppression and a subduing effect on God's people because it is like a strong, high tower that is designed to keep God and his way out of your life. And the master of so many people's souls is the devil. Jesus said to the Pharisees once, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Now, they weren't walking around, you know, slobbering at the mouth, acting like a lunatic, but they were mastered and controlled, very religious people, but they were mastered by the devil. They gave tithes of all that they have. They fasted twice a week. They prayed long and lengthy prayers, and they did so much noble stuff in the streets and the religious activity of their life. Jesus said, if your righteousness, if your right ways are not better than theirs, you'll never make it into the kingdom because they have gone about to establish their own righteousness. And who's behind that? The devil. How did he get in to do that? How does he invade us, our children here in this room right here, maybe out there? How does he do it? Do we let him? Do we not figure him out? What happens? Turn to 1 Peter, another old familiar verse of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 and 9. Your adversary, the devil, the Bible says he goes about 
like a roaring lion. What does he do it? What does a roaring lion do? Be sober, be vigilant, verse eight, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he can devour. Let me ask you a question. Can he devour you? Now the word devour means to drink down, to consume, to take over. Can he? Now don't answer me. You might be surprised how easy it was or how easy it is for people to give place to the devil. All you need is a bad day, a bad moment, and the feeling of offended anger, and you want to do something, and the devil says, I wouldn't take that. Hey, look at that guy staring at you. Why don't you go over and ask him what he's thinking about? I'm just saying. And you go over and deal with it. That's not God. That's not the way God told us to live. That's not how we handle our problems. If they smite us on one cheek, we turn the other. If they stare at us, we look away. Well, you're a coward. Well, if I am, then it's because God wants me to be one. I just don't have any desire to know that God said, be meek and lowly, and then to turn around and try to prove that I'm tough enough to, to whip this guy. There's nothing spiritual about that. In fact, I'm degressing instead of progressing. Who excited me to want to do that? The devil. That's how easy it was. Just a bad day. Somebody cut in front of you the other day, parking lot. My turn signals wanted to get that parking lot at Kroger's, right the number one best parking spot for non-handicapped people in the county. And I'm waiting. Person backs out. As they pull out, somebody boom. Pull right in my spot. Now, you know what the temptation is? <laughs> the temptation is to let somebody know that you don't appreciate that. Now, where do you think the inspiration for that comes from? Well, didn't you feel it? Of course I felt it. I mean, it kind of on the inside. Just because I was tempted doesn't mean I have to yield to the temptation. Because there's another something that offsets the temptation, and that's what would God do? What would Jesus have me do here? Roll the window down and tell this nice lady that she's a, uh, um, not very nice? Or just to go park somewhere else? Just go park in the back and walk. You need the exercise anyway, praise the Lord. But isn't that better, spiritually? Well, what makes us so rotten? What makes us so difficult? Well, verse 9, whom resist steadfast in the faith, what the same afflictions are accomplished by your brethren that are in the world. Let me tell you all something. The devil cannot just devour whoever he wants to. He goes about seeking to. He can't just devour everybody. If he could, we wouldn't have a chance. I mean, some people he can't come into and have his way. They resist him. They've got something that he has to honor. The devil cannot just invade a person if what the person resists him with is something that God backs. So he can't just have his way. And if he can't have his way with you, he'll have his way with somebody. He keeps looking. He's no respecter of persons either. He'd love to have your baby or your children or your wife, or your husband, anybody, he doesn't care. He just wants somebody so that he can manifest himself in. Another person he can corrupt and cause to be a problem instead of a solution. So he goes about all the time with all of us, every one of us, prompting us to say the wrong thing, prompting us to do the wrong thing, prompting us to make bad decisions. He can't just devour anybody. But he looks for weaknesses. He looks for that person who can't handle pressure. That person who can't handle defeat. Playing basketball, somebody stole the ball from me and made me look bad. I want to hit him. I want to trip him. I want to hurt him. Where do you suppose that comes from? You got a weakness in your life, a serious weakness. And the devil eventually will probably have you shot, killed, or beat up for that. But that's his work. 
That's the way the devil does it. And look at the mass of humanity that he controls. Look at the mass of humanity that yields itself daily and continuously to the devil and all these corrupt ways of life. I mean, he does it all the time. Just these thoughts, the ideas that pop into our mind. Well, why should you wait? Well, that message of faith and all that stuff, that sounds foolish. Why is it foolish? Because to me, it's not sensible in the way I look at things. Well, maybe you're not seeing what God said. Well, that's too hard to understand. I have my own way of seeing things. And when you preach about healing or deliverance or things like that, praying for your loved one to be saved or whatever it is, I just think you're being foolish. I think that's overboard. I think that's cultish. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, I don't know. You don't know what the Bible says, but you think I'm or we're or whatever or crazy. Well, I know you're crazy. I just don't know, you know. So he begins his work. He begins all of his work. A message one night comes on or one day comes about taking up the cross daily. All that live godly will suffer. Hardships, persecutions, trials, tribulations. The Bible's full of it. That a Christian must realize that in this life, because of the decisions that God wants you to make, you are going to suffer the consequences in an adversarial world for it. But if you want to walk with the Lord, you'll have to walk on his terms. Because that is what Christianity is. It's living on Christ's terms. And if you don't want to live that way, you can't be a Christian. You can be religious, you can belong to a church, but you can't make it the way God wants you to. It's a challenge. Is there not a reason Jesus said many will seek to enter and not be able? Isn't there a reason that Jesus said only a few will make it? People aren't beating down the doors to carry a cross. People aren't beating down the doors to live in a way that your neighbor's going to get suspicious if you or think you're weird. Or when you want to stand your ground, maybe you spanked your child with a, as I did once, with some weeds. I got a handful of weeds. He told me not to go across the street. He went across the street. We're getting ready to go to her parents' house. So I just got some, you know, what, fescue? It didn't hurt, but it made him, you know. So he cried. When we got to her mom and dad's house, he had red marks all over his legs. I thought, man. And then, the, well, you shouldn't have done that. Now you're going to get in trouble because now they're going to think that you're some bully. I didn't try to mark his leg. Well, the devil makes sure they're marked. Just so you can feel embarrassed by obeying God. Next time you want, you might not do that. There are people who will stand their ground. There's people who won't. Because when we don't want to do it God's way, it's because of some mental mechanism that's been developed. Some system of thinking that talks us out of the right way to do it our way. And the more you do it on your own opinion, the more friends you have, the more people that will accept you. Because if you're one of these Bible quoters, a lot of people don't want to spend a lot of time around you and vice versa. You know that uh, you know evil company can corrupt good morals. So you tend to stay away from, from people that will take what you give them, your pearl of great price, and cast it before the swine. You learn to, there's just some things you don't talk about to people and some people you stay away from because that's God's way. That's what he said. You know, you just, again, you don't cast your foot before a swine. Because the devil's always telling you, be reasonable, be sensible. Think about this. Come on, after all, you're not that bad. Is not the devil called the tempter? This will be good. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. That's not far from where you are. Just keep going right. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5. Paul writes, he said, For this cause 
when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest, what? Now hold on here for a minute because I want to make a point here. Some of you may not like it, but let me make it. I sent to find out about your faith, lest the devil has tempted you, that is successfully done it, and what results? How does a verse end? And our labor what? Is the apostle Paul say, if the devil has successfully done what he's trying to do, then everything I've done is of no use? The Greek word means useless. You may have a translation that says that. Then is our work useless? It was for nothing. Because what brings you into the kingdom is the way of God. It's a narrow way. It's not designed for whoever wants to have a piece of the kingdom. It's a narrow way. You've got to be willing to live this way. And the broad way, obviously, is of the devil. That's, come on, give everybody a break. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, if the devil has come in and give you something different and new to think about in contrast to what you've been taught, then nothing I've taught is of any value to you spiritually because your religion will become vain. Eventually, you'll just be settled and seduced and quietly religious in some nice church the rest of your life. And the way you are now is the way you'll be when it's over. Remember what he said to the Galatian church? Paul had preached in Galatia. Spent a lot of time there. Spent a lot of time teaching them the right way. And after he left, these men that commentators call Judaizers who want to go where this Christian conversion stuff has taken place and tell them they have to obey the law. And when they would do that, the people would get confused. So, Paul said in Galatians 3, having heard about their problems and what's going on, he said in Galatians 3, 1, he said, who hath bewitched you? And he called them, oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. I poured my life into you. A segment of my life was in labor for your spiritual well-being. And I no longer disappear around the corner and you switch over and follow something else. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Would you agree with me that being bewitched is not a compliment? <laughs> Nobody's ever had the first church of the bewitched. The word bewitched means to hold in a malign spell or under the power of something that's maligned. It's a devil. It is God's work to rescue the perishing, to set their feet up on a rock and to establish their goings. Are you with me? It is the devil's work to come in and try to take those establishments of God, power them down to where there's not such a big deal and you don't have to do that because after all, God loves you anyway. And instead of you having the zeal to walk with the Lord like you used to, you sort of power back and, well, I don't know. You know, maybe we tried too hard. Maybe we don't have to do all. And then one day you realize the word is offending you. He's preaching at me. I think he's getting a little old and legalistic. I think he's just... Oh, I think he's probably, I don't know what he is. Would you look in Galatians just a minute? Listen to what he says to these people. He said, to whom the religion is vain. Just go back a couple books to the left, Galatians. He said, in Galatians 3, 1, he said, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not what? Obey the truth. Who told you you don't have to obey the truth? What if I said to all of us here today, you have to obey the truth. Am I right or am I adding to the scriptures? You make that decision. Some people might think, I think you're adding to it. Because you're making it sound like works now. It doesn't take works to be saved. No, we're not saved by works. You're not saved without them either. Because works telegraph 
to the world your sincere acceptance and reception of Christ. If you received him, then he must increase, you must decrease. And by their fruits and by your light, we will know if you did. So it takes that. But he said in Galatians 3, and he said, uh, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Who told you you don't have to do this? What philosophy and what new movement in America? What new program or preacher of renown or whatever has told us that we don't have to do what God said? Who told you that? Where did that thought come from that has become a way? You've wrapped your will around something that God has to judge, but you don't see that, but he will. And so you live that way. That's why we preached last week. You got to stir the church up. You got to take stock of yourself. Look at yourself. Look into the mirror of the word. Are you like that? Are you lining up with that? Do you subscribe to that? Is this the way you want to live? Check yourself out while there's time. Because when the clock strikes its moment for your life, you're through. Then it's the judgment. You don't want to face the judgment casually because there's nothing casual about looking at the almighty God. But he said in Galatians 4, you've surely found it by now. Galatians 4, look at verse 9. But now after that you have known God, but notice the next little thing he says, or rather, Ooh, that doesn't sound good. But now, after that, you have known God, or rather are known of God. How turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and Decembers and years. I'm afraid of you. The church he pastored that he said was bewitched. He said, I'm afraid for you. Oh, they're all right. No, they're not. No, they're not. Not the way they are. No, they're not. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you our labor. How? In vain. I hate to think that I spent all my time and you weren't saved. I hate to think, Paul said, I spent this much time with you that were brought out of darkness into his marvelous lights, the redeemed of the Lord, the ransomed who are planted in his courts and given this ministry, this compelling ministry to labor, to get you established, to make disciples out of you, to pour my heart into you, Paul said. I'd hate to think that I've done all of that. And in just one false moment, you throw it all away. I have labored for nothing. Can you imagine? I don't know what could be right now more depressing than if I had to say at the end of my life, I've wasted my time, Shelbyville. They don't believe a thing I've taught them. Wouldn't that be awful? Because you'd say, no, 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 no. Some of you would. But wouldn't that be a terrible thing to write and say, you know, I, I spent 30 years there. Well, longer than that now. I spent 40 years there. I spent 100 years there. And most of them have never changed. They're where they used to be. They were once out of debt, now they're back in debt. They once were walking apart from the systems of this world, now they're back in it. They once loved to hear it, wouldn't miss a meeting, now they miss and don't want to hear it. Now they complain. Now I'm making all this up, okay? Say amen. Because if you can't, maybe it's old me. As I said last week, you didn't hire me. If you could hire me to preach, I wouldn't care what happened to you. I did my job. It's what you paid me to do. It's your problem, not mine. I'm out of here. Well, I preach your sermons. I bury your old people, marry your young people, and kiss all your babies. Give me my money and I'm gone. You contrast that to the fact that you're not for sale. You're not for hire. You're a gift. 
You're given to people, not to please them, not to make them happy, but to make disciples out of them. If they don't want to respond, holler at them. If they're still dragging their feet, get in their face and holler at them again and until they either get right or, or they leave. But you want to make disciples. You know all of us, me, and I, I know I do, and I know you do, we fight the devil every day. We're tempted to break the laws, to, to be verbal, to be physical, to be nasty, lustful every day. Every day, and the weapons of these warfare are mighty through God so that we can overcome all of that. But remember something. I want to go to another verse, but remember this. Paul said, I sent to find out about your faith lest the tempter. Who's the tempter? What's the devil? Lest the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. The tempter. Is the tempter the roaring lion? Go to James chapter one. Obviously, we will not finish today. And that's a good thing. And we won't finish it next week. And that's another good thing. And probably not the week after that. That's really a good thing. We'd like to saturate our minds and hearts with a truth that will challenge the devil. Challenge him. Now, he said in James chapter one, in verse 14, we'll probably be here for a little bit, but that's okay. Verse 14, every man, we talked about temptation a while ago, the tempter. Every man is tempted like this. When temptation is successful, when the devil's allurements and enticements are sensible and reasonable to you and they focus upon your happiness and woo. When he's able to get your attention like that and you subscribe to it, here's what he says. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Your Bible says that, doesn't it? Now, the word temptation, tempted here, means to entice or solicit to oppose God. You are enticed, allured, drawn to do something in your life, make choices differently than what God wants. Oh, you know the way that God has said, but the devil said, yes, but see, right now that's not convenient. I mean, nobody does that. Nobody believes like that. And I wish he'd quit talking about this. I wish he'd quit talking about that. I wish he'd quit talking about holidays. I get that note once or twice a year. Why? Are you offended by that? Does it offend you? Does it offend you to talk about dead religion? How do we know we're not dead? What's the liveliness of us in contrast with anybody else? I mean, I'm not exalting us. I'm just telling you the truth. There is a religious way that is dead. It doesn't change people's hearts. Like Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, remember in Matthew 23, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. And he said, you Pharisees, you compass or you go about heaven and earth to make one disciple. And when you're through indoctrinating him with, with your way, he is twice fold a child of hell more than you are. He's doomed. Your religion, your ways, your religious ways have literally doomed this man because he'll never grow because he has a restraint. He's restricted. He can't go the way God wants him to go. Not anymore. That's why religion gets vain, folks. I'll tell you again so you can write another note. The church I grew up in was death. It was death. They had a Bible they preach sermons, they sing songs. But how many of you know that you can sing, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of light. How many of you know you can sing that and not mean it? You've just learned to sing a song. 
Yeah, but when we got saved, we got baptized. Good, you went down wet and you got up wet. You went down lost, you got up lost. Your life never changed. Mine didn't. 28 years. I was no different after I got baptized than I was before. It was dead. Nothing, nothing engaged my heart. Nothing determined me about God. It was never a must or I have to. It was always an option. We should obey God. It would be good if you did. We ought to vote on that. It was never an absolute because the preacher wouldn't last long because he was hired. He could be fired if he offended people. So he knew what to say and he knew not what to say. And what he left out was my doom. And then tapes, tape recorders were invented. And you start hearing tapes. And the guy on the tape recorder, he didn't care if I was offended. He didn't care if I got my feelings hurt. He said the very things that I didn't, you know, all my sacred cows, he, he hammered them all. But it made me think it was God's way of illumining me to his way and at the same time showing me that the way I had settled myself into was a way of death because he does not bless that. He does not honor that. The only thing that God watches over is his word and the operation of it. If we're not doing it that way, then we just have our religion is vain. So he said, if the devil has tempted you, if he has successfully drawn you away or is drawing you away, it's because of your lust, your cravings, and you've been enticed. Notice verse 15. When lust hath conceived, that is when it attaches itself to you and you accept it. You begin to think like that. Your mind becomes sexual. You start imagining and thinking and then doing other things you shouldn't do to gratify yourself. It's all of the devil. He said, then when lust hath conceived, well, read it. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when sin is finished, sin brings forth what? It means you are unacceptable with all your religion, with all your efforts. It means that you die. That sounds negative to me. Well, it probably does, but there's a positive side to this. It doesn't have to be negative. Just obey God. Resist sin. Genesis 4 and verse 9 says that sin lieth at the door of all of us and its desire, it's a personality, it's a person, its desire is for you, but you must rule it. We have power over sin because a great defender of our hearts lives within us. We have no excuse for not walking with the Lord or for making right decisions. Christ in us is our power, our strength. I can do all things through Christ who weakens me, strengthens me. All things through Christ who strengthens me. But oh, how the devil tempts us. Cravings. Take food. How many people justify the fact that they can't stop eating? I mean, it's good, isn't it? I mean, didn't God make food? Isn't food good? Volumes of it is good. I stopped this morning to get a cup of coffee before I came here, and a man walking out in front of me, uh, there was a lot of man there. And he had a box of Krispy Kremes. Now, you know those are good. Now, they're good. One at a time, 12 of them. Is there anything wrong with that? Where does the Bible say, thou shalt not eat Krispy Kreme donuts by the box? Where does it say that? It doesn't. It doesn't. Where does it say, thou shalt not eat donuts? Thou shalt not enjoy sugar. Ooh, what a spirit that is. What does it say? It's called conscience. There's some things that I don't need in my body. Sometimes I 
I indulge. I eat two Big Macs every year. I haven't had this year's Big Mac yet, but I will. And I usually get two of those very wonderful, what's those big Frankfurters called? Help me, Johnny. That's it, bratwurst. Whoa. I get two a year. Usually at the same place. You know what? I don't need all that other stuff. Well, is it bad for you? Cholesterol and stuff? Bible said all foods are good. I don't have to worry about that other stuff. Now, you can if you want to. I just know that I don't need anything extra. I know this. If I eat too much, I look bigger than I should. I'm already big enough. I know that I don't need to eat a lot. And the older you get, your metabolism does slow down. So you don't need to eat a lot because if you eat a lot, then you want to lay around a lot. <laughs> I don't need that. I don't need that. So I tell myself, while you could have all of that, you don't need it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. Okay. Remember, your body belongs. Uh-oh, now you're messing it up. Your body belongs to who? Don't say it too loud. Your body belongs to God. You're supposed to manage it for him and take care of it for him. It's supposed to be a holy temple. I don't mean we have to go around and look at real thin like these people on TV. But there's a craving that people have. There's the power to stop that, isn't there? Take debt. I mentioned that a while ago. What about debt? What about credit cards? What credit card? Once you get a credit card, you enter in the new way of thinking. Look at me. Now look what I can have. Before I had a credit card, I couldn't afford it. You can now. You only live once, brother. I mean, come on, man. Hey, relax. You can pay it off next month. And so you, well, I can, can I? Yeah. Take your wife out to eat. Where? Take them to a nice place. Take her to Jeff Ruby's. Never heard of that. That's Okay. It's just real expensive, but I haven't been there either. But anyway, <laughs> about 70 bucks each for a, a meal, you know. I don't have it, but you got the card. <laughs> Throw the card on there. They love the card. Plop it down there like you're, the, you know, like you're Charlie Potatoes or somebody. And get you, get it. And the bill comes in. You know, flies could fly in your mouth when you go, man, $580. I don't have $580. What's the minimum? $33. Whoo. 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 $33. I can do that. Next month, need tires on your car? Tars on your car? I know they're tires, but I like tars. Need tars on your car? Put the card on them. Card them. You work, you need to buy some materials and stuff and you don't have the money for it. Card it. You wouldn't have done that before. Who's, uh, where do you suppose this inspiration to do that comes from? Now we're getting close to home because we might be talking to the right people this morning. Where does that come from? You tell me how, you tell me how a Christian who is enlightened can find themselves, one brother I helped work this out with somebody, $15,000 in credit card debt. Now, my conversation with him was pretty direct. I said, how can you be that stupid? And he didn't say, I don't like the way you talk. It didn't matter. His family talk. I said, how can you be that stupid? How can you let yourself just go like you were more reasonable and restricted and restrained before? You were more careful about things, and all of a sudden you got that card and you feel like you can have whatever you want, even though you can't pay for it. And then they got these companies on every other broadcast. You in debt so much money, we'll get you out of debt. You can only pay half of it back. That's immoral. 
your $15,000 in hawk, you owe them $15,000. And quit crying about they're charging me too much interest. You had your eyes open before you used that card. If you don't pay it all off, they're going to cha-ching you and cha-ching you and keep cha-chinging you. And then you're going to get depressed. Then you're going to come to church and be offended when somebody talks to you about your debt. And you don't like the way that he said that. Oh, it's going to be said anyway. Because that's not the way we live. We pay our bills. We don't leave people hanging. What if that was one of the things that when the Lord came back and said, well, you owe this world a lot of money. You're going to stay here till you pay it. I don't want that on my life. I don't know that that's true. I don't even want to think that it is. I'm going to avoid that. I don't want to owe any man anything except one thing. That's to love him. I'll just do without. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of things he has. Your life is not your home and your fine and fancy, clever displays, furnishings. It's not your liberty to buy this and go there. This life is not about that. You can be blessed like that, but that's not your life. Your life is in serving Jesus Christ on his terms every day. Anything that gets in there and talks you out of that and you begin to do things your way and begin to reason with the Lord about, well, I mean, after all, that's the way the devil comes in. It was a weakness you had about money and possessions. You'd look good if you had this. A young man sees a fancy car. A young man with both pockets empty sees a fine, fancy car going down a road. The guy's got a fine, fancy girl in the car. They look good. And he lusts after that. Man, if I had that car... That'd be all I want in life. And if I had her and her with me, that'd really be all I'm on. <laughs> That's not what life is about. You don't have to lust for things. God will give you what you need. My God shall supply all of your needs. He may want you to live humbly for a while. There's nothing wrong with doing without and living in your means. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with living in your means. And if you can't afford it, don't buy it. If you can't afford to go, don't go. If you can't afford to give it, don't give it. Just let God rule your life. This is part of your life too. How about dress? How about cravings for dress? How about wanting to dress so you look good and others will be noticeable of the way you, you know, especially if it's pretty racy stuff. You think that happens? Why would a young girl dress seductively? Why would she dress too low, too high? You know, why would she dress like that? Why would she want to not wear certain items so it would look like she doesn't have that certain kind of apparel? Why does she want to not wear things she should wear? Why? Is this what everybody else is doing? You want to be like everybody else, they're all going to perish. You want to be like that? Then be like that. But you can't do what you just said and have that philosophy and that way of thinking and be a Christian because that's not what pleases God. I don't care if you like it or not. That's true. That's the way it is. You see, folks, a Trojan horse comes into a citadel, comes into a fortress. It's full of the enemy. It doesn't look like it. It looks like a pretty good thing. Then all of a sudden... When everybody's asleep, quiet, out it comes, your enemy, and he gains entrance into your life. And suddenly all the freedoms and peace you once had is now in turmoil because you let him in. You gave way to the thinking of your friends or some magazine article you read by some heady somebody. I read an article the other day on the Google net what a time-consuming mess that is. My, my. A sidebar. And a girl made a vow at a camp, a Christian camp one time, to remain a virgin until she was married. Committed herself to that. I think wore some kind of a ring. And then went on to describe the rest of the brief article there 
about how she hated that because when she married, it was not what, and she, and then she wound up saying what was really been right would have been if I could have known the bartender and then the mechanic and all of that. And then when I married my husband, I would have known what's going on. The wisdom of this world is death. See, God is in none of that. I don't know what camp she went to, what persuasion she was, but there was nothing of God in her decision-making parts. Now, I'm glad to say this morning that we're not done. We'll pick this up again. But I want you to think about it the rest of this week. The actions you take, the choices you make this week, how much of all of that is inspired of God to please him? And how much of the fun stuff you think are you willing to resist? Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would touch each of our hearts with conviction and understanding. Lord, that nobody would believe what is said this morning because I said it. But that each of us as individuals would think about our lives. Let's each of us look in our mirror and examine ourselves to see if we really are in the faith or not. And ask ourselves, is Jesus really my Lord? Is he the great reason for my decisions? Am I living to please him? I pray, Lord, for this church and this assembly, those who listen, that the move of God that we so desire would be the one that changes hearts. Something within us, something deep, something powerful, something that makes us cling to Jesus in our darkest and most difficult moments to do the right thing and to have his help to do it. I ask you to bless this congregation of people this morning to do that, to live that way, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might so that we may triumph in this life and truly overcome. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen.